经建树已成。唯不能斩绝人伦之情。阿瑶，昨日李一番家。分赐了我一了气，罪无可还，为我刺其手，无始之举。Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John, and with me,、uh, as always, is my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today?、Uh, I'm fine, thanks, John. How are you? I'm doing fine as well.、Uh, so, in today's episode, we continue with our theme of、uh, big、A、Asian、uh, award winners, or rather, Asian big award winners,、uh, with the 2015 film The Assassin, directed by. Uh, Su Xiao Shen, I think I pronounced that right. Although、uh, perhaps we'll figure it out during the course of the episode.、Mm -hmm. But before we get into that,、uh, Jason, what have you been doing、uh, since、uh, last time we talked? So my cultural highlights were mostly films.、Um, I started with "Louder Can't Hear What You're Singing, Wimp" from 2018、uh, by Satoshi Miki, who、um, previously directed、uh, "Adrift in Tokyo." And、uh, louder is essentially a madcap musical comedy about a hippieish street busker with a tiny voice, as in a really quiet singer, meeting a satanic heavy metal star who is in a career crisis due to him losing his voice. But he tries to boost her confidence, and、um, it stars Riho Yoshioka and Sadao Abe, who we last saw in Lesson in Murder at the New York Asian Film Festival special. And I found、uh, louder. Was a film of two halves. The first half was very funny.、Uh, you can see Mickey plays up the sort of bizarreness of the characters' differing backgrounds and their subsequent personality clashes.、Uh, but when he tries to introduce like、uh, tragic backstories and、um, pushes the central couple into a romance, the film slows down and gets a bit maudlin. And it feels like a misstep. 
But apart from that, Mickey uh, is a master of milking every aspect of the film uh, for comedy. Like he gets the actors to do ridiculous movements. Um, he lights them up with expressive colors and uses framing to maximize comedy. So ultimately, I liked it. It's probably nothing like it, but your uh, description of the story reminded me a little bit of Detroit Metal City, which we mentioned uh, a couple of episodes ago. Like, you know, the whole heavy metal and uh, a guy who doesn't belong there, that, that, I think that aspect of it. But I'm sure the film is nothing like it. Yeah, Detroit Metal City is kind of like uh, this guy's got a split personality, whereas Louder Can't Hear What You're Singing with has the two different people yeah, yeah. of the separate personalities. Uh, so yeah, good spot. It is similar. Um, I also watched Foreboding by Kyoshi Kurosawa. Um, it's a 2018 side story to his sci-fi thriller Before We Vanish, which I reviewed on V-Cinema. Uh, Foreboding is a retread of the film. So essentially you've got an invasion of the body snatchers scenario as seen through the eyes of a married couple. Only the aliens hijack human hosts and start their invasion by stealing concepts behind words. So they ask people to think of a word and when the person's picturing it, uh, they touch the person's forehead and steal the concept. So for example, a person who's thinking of the word fear, what it means, will have that meaning plucked out of their head and begin to act irrationally. And uh, foreboding... Originally a five-part TV series that aired on the Wow Wow uh, TV channel. And I think it was like uh, scrunched down into 140 minutes and it's got uh, major pacing issues as the first half is all slow build up as the invasion uh, slowly begins. And then the second half is all action as the invasion kicks off. Uh, the first half is definitely the strongest, as Kurosawa uses a lot of horror techniques and locations from films like Cure and Pulse to build suspense. And um, I felt, yeah, the second half is really rushed. And there are contrivances that lead to an unsatisfying ending. I don't remember, but it's been a while. I think I saw Before We Vanish very shortly after. So I think it came out in 2017 and I must have seen it in 2018 or something like that. But I don't remember it having any action or having it any horror. I remember it was... A very, I mean, I, I thought it was an interesting take on science fiction, but it was mostly a sort of a quiet drama, not not unlike Tokyo Sonata, which I think is his best film. Ah, uh, no, foreboding is the film uh, is the film slash uh, TV series with the horror aspects, whereas um, Before You Vanish opens up with sort of like a comedic um, situation where the wife's getting frustrated with her husband because. She, like she, it doesn't dawn on her yet that he's been taken over by an alien and he's like trying to get all these concepts from people and he's acting in a bizarre manner. Uh, yes, I, if you enjoyed the first one, you might find this one interesting. Okay. Yeah. I'll, and it's, it's worth checking out. Yeah. The way, the way Kurosawa films action is really bizarre anyway, because he's got like Yakuza thrillers, um, that he's done where the action is just really flat, but it's done for sort of deliberate satirical effect. Um, yeah. Uh, what else have I watched? Uh, well, you're you're into Korean movies. Um, Hong Sang Soo. Are you a fan of his? Oh uh, well, he's the one Korean director who I'm sadly not. Uh, uh, I have not explored. I think I've seen only one of his films uh, a long time ago, and I don't even remember. It was, I think twenty, uh, like came out twenty seven or twenty two thousand eight. But no, I'm I'm I I know he's a well regarded director, but unfortunately he's sort of one my my one blind spot well, one of my few blind spots into Korean cinema. Yeah, he's really prolific. I think he's made thirty films. He's made a lot, yeah. Yeah, he was working he's been working since the nineties. Was it the day the pig fell down the well? 
Song Kang Ho's uh, debut in in cinema, in Korean cinema. Yep, Woman is the Future of Man. Yeah. So, like, he's been making sort of, uh, really noticeable titles since the 90s. And uh, he's really come into his own since, I'd say, like, the 2010s, where he um, gained sort of international attention for films that um, sort of revolve around people getting drunk over soju and having long-winded conversations. So that's, I mean, that's the thing. I've always regarded him, and this is probably not accurate, but it just helps me, helps me categorize the like sort of how I view his film. He's, he's always sort of like, in my head, I've always um, thought of him as the Korean Koreeda in the sense of like, he all makes these quiet uh, dramas with a lot of dialogue and not necessarily the most, uh, I don't want to say action-packed because that's really not a requirement, but it, like they're slow in general. And that's, I think kind of, I've just never been in the mood for one of his films when I've had the time, uh, which is a shame because he's one of the Korean directors who has a very good reputation abroad. Like outside yeah, he of keeps Korea. winning like silver bears at Berlin, are they? Yeah, absolutely. I think you might find him funny because he makes self-reflexive films. Um, basically, like pretentious filmmakers go on dates and get drunk and embarrass themselves. And um, that's essentially the plot of Right Now, Wrong Then, a 2015 film. And uh, it stars uh, Kim Min-hee, I think that's her name. Um, who uh, I think he late, he divorced his wife to marry her. Um, uh, There's a scandal around that. But it's a film told in two parts where you have the director's perspective in the first part and then the scenes are replayed in the second part from the uh, uh, woman's perspective. And it is quite funny. I uh, I recommend that one to you just to see how you find it. Yeah, I, it's definitely going to be... I mean, he is a director that I've always kind of wanted to. And I've just, like I said, it's... It's it's just always I've never been in the mood. Uh, uh, although I guess sometimes you do have to force the mood. Yeah, it as you uh, suspect, it's quiet, very talky, um, but there is a lot of wry humor behind it. Okay. Um, and uh, I watched some Hal Hartley films. Have you ever heard of Hal Hartley, the American filmmaker? I does not does not ring a bell. Yeah, so um, probably Henry Fool is his most famous film. Uh, but I watched Simple Men and No Such Thing. Um, like Simple Men was made in the early 1990s and No Such Thing was made in the early 2000s. Um, they're okay. Uh, the first is like a family drama where a crook and uh, his brother, a student, leave New York and head out to Rhode Island on a quest to find their missing father, who's an aging political radical who's escaped prison. Um, it's not great, but I think it achieves it, at the very least a coolness in a way. Hartley and his actors use balactic blocking and stilted dialogue delivery to make the film a comedy rather than a simple melodrama. Um, uh, really cool to look at and listen to the actors deliver their lines. Um, I wasn't so charmed by No Such Thing, which is like a critique of the media, but it's really underdeveloped. And uh, last but not least, um, I'm currently engaged in a rewatch of the TV anime Monster so Netflix recently acquired a whole bunch of anime. For, uh, I think it's from TV Tokyo. Um, I tweeted this out last month or earlier this month uh, in September. But Monster is a 74-episode saga about a neurosurgeon um, based in Germany in the 1980s who saves the life of a young boy only for that boy to turn out to be a serial killer. And it sets in motion a sort of decade-long struggle for the surgeon to track down the serial killer and uh, try and kill him. 
and it has this rich setting of Cold War, post-Cold War Europe, and an extensive cast of characters who are all fascinating and add different dimensions to the surgeon's moral quandaries, specifically whether he should take a life after a career spent saving lives. And it delves into like different aspects of Germany, such as the Turkish immigrants, um, sort of wartime Germany and the uh, like fallout of people's histories with the Nazi party. And um, the episodes are really thick with horror. Some episodes can be spy thrillers. Um, there are gangster stories and melodramas. They're all each really well written and they keep expanding upon the theme of good versus evil and um, where there's right to take a life. And uh, each all the characters develop over the course of the series. And even though I've seen it before, I still get frightened and cry at certain parts of the story. So if you haven't seen Monster, I think it's definitely one to watch. I'm midway through my rewatch and I'm enjoying it immensely. I also, that's another one that I've wanted to, to watch for, for a while. So uh, I'm also, I, I also am, uh, uh, I've recently discovered that the, my library has all this, has the comic, I mean, the, the manga series. I've even debated reading it. Mm. Uh, I don't know if it's, if it's, the, you know, if there's any div- major differences, but yeah, it's something that I, I, I plan to check out at some point in the future. Yeah, definitely worth investing the time. Each of the episodes are around 22 minutes long, so you can like binge watch a whole bunch. And apart from that, I watched two Ho Xiao Xian films, um, which I'll mention later. And that was essentially a roundup of my cultural highlights. All right. So it's a good selection. So for mine, for my turn, there's a few things that I kind of watched that I enjoyed, some not so much. But uh, I'll start with uh, the, the new series uh, called Welcome to Wrexham. And this is a documentary series about two American uh, pers- movies, well, not movie stars, but uh, Ryan Reynolds and uh, Rob uh, Ryan Reynolds of Deadpool fame and Rob McHelany McHelany I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia fame bought a fifth tier Welsh uh, football team uh, called Wrexham AFC uh, and they're uh, essentially it's a documentary about how that process went and uh, and how how it's managed. Uh, how they're how they're trying to lift the team out of like a near bankrupt state, and how they're trying to you know uh, help it promote into the next year, which would be the English Football League. Uh, and it's a really not it's a really fantastic documentary. It's it's it really for one thing it's a especially right from the first episode it shows all the challenges that it takes to 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 manage a low tier football team and how you know how the players depend on it and they're not you know you think of football players as you know millionaires and and uh living in luxury but for teams this small football players barely make enough to to sustain themselves so it's a really uh it's a really interesting documentary and it's also a really fun documentary to watch another another i don't know if you know where is wrexham in terms of wales is it close to oh i'm not sure (laughs) Looked like a small town, so maybe it's not like one of the big towns that everybody knows, big cities that everybody knows where it is. But anyway, uh, I watched a new series, uh, a new comedy series called Abbott Elementary, which is I, I don't really have much to say, but it's like The Office, but about a, a a an American public school. And I the the comedy is hit or miss in my opinion, but I enjoyed it because it's a very very interesting or at least realistic take on how all the challenges that it takes to. Uh, to run and uh, teach in an uh, American inner city uh, public high school, 
public uh, or elementary school. Uh, and uh, I, I like that it didn't really cut any corners. They didn't pull any punches. And I think it kind of dominated at the Emmys this year, just to mention, as of the time of the recording, I think the Emmys happened last week or something like that. The Emmys are not an award ceremony that I follow, but, you know, being on the internet, it's almost impossible to actually miss miss these kinds of events. I watched another series called, the, this was a miniseries called The Dropout, which is about the woman behind the one of the greatest frauds in uh, sort of American medical history. She founded a company that was supposed to revol- revolutionize medical testing, but it, it was all a fraud under the hood. And, uh, and this is a documentary. This is a, essentially a fictionalized miniseries of that, of that story, and it was pretty good. I enjoyed that one. I watched two films uh, that were sort of prompted by, by our discussions. One was some that you mentioned called High Risk. I think you mentioned this offline. Uh, starring, um, I forget who was the actor. I don't think it was Andy Lau. Uh, Jet Li. Jet Li, that's right. Jet Li, but was the, the guy that played Jackie Chan. I think his name was Jackie, Jackie Chung, is it? Chung, yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> very funny. So High Risk, and I think it's also uh, translated as Meltdown in the, in the US. And the copy that I watched was a dubbed copy. And that was not bad, but I think the dubbed copy was titled Meltdown. Um, and I... You know, we uh, this was I think this was brought on by our discussion of sort of like Jackie Chan's reputation in Hong Kong, right? And yeah. uh, I had stumbled on a Reddit a comment that was talking about how how he's not at all beloved in Hong Kong due to his some of his uh, less than flattering uh, actions uh, uh, behind the cameras. And uh, his uh, sort of like pro-China stance, his adultering, his uh, uh, alcohol abuse and all that. We're not going to go into that because that's just irrelevant. Uh, but uh, you recommended this film as a as a parody of Jackie Chan. Well, that, that's not the main focus of the film. Just one of the main characters in the film is meant to be sort of a parody of Jackie Chan. Although I I have to say, uh, for for a parody, it was not really that insulting towards Jackie Chan. It was I, I think in the end he still ends up being a pretty likable character. Uh, the guy who plays him. I mean, yes, he's an alcoholic. He kind of, uh, he's a silly character. He's a womanizer and he's a sort of a coward. But in the end, he still kind of ends up being likable and and kind of has like a, a, what do you call it? A uh, change of heart moment, sort of. I, I think, you know, thinking about this in context, like it, Wong Jing made it after he made City Hunter with Jackie Chan and Jackie Chan said it was a terrible experience. He had some... Uh, I think uh, bones to pick with him, or something like that. He had a bone to pick. So with yeah, him. this is Wong Jing's revenge, and I can imagine like um, at the time of release, like it's playing at a cinema uh, at midnight, and you've got a crowd, and they're just losing their minds over seeing like a uh, Jackie Chan being mocked. Yes, uh, yeah, that's true. But I think like twenty years later, it's it doesn't feel like that much of a mockery. But yeah, absolutely, like some of the scenes are really, really. Uh, scathing uh, or very unflattering towards him. Yeah, Jackie Chan doesn't perform his own stunts according to Wong Jing. Yeah, which I don't think it's true. I think that was, I don't think Jackie, I mean, I don't, I think out of all the negative things you can say about Jackie Chan not performing in his own stunt, I don't think that would be accurate. 
Well, if the outtakes or anything go by, he does his own stunts. Yes. And, and, and in the film, and actually, to be fair, in the film High Risk, the only reason, uh, like, it, like the character that is a Jackie Chan character, and his, his uh, name is Frankie Lone, I think, uh, he does perform his own stunt. It's just for that one movie, he can't because he's too drunk. Yeah, uh, but it's it's implied that he oh like that would be a first time that he's not doing it right. Uh, yeah, like, so even in the film, it's not exactly suggested that he doesn't perform his own stunt. So there's I think there's a bit of subtlety there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Anyway, uh, so there's that. I watched after again after our discussion last time, uh, Hannah and Alice from um, Shanji Ey. Uh, yeah, yeah, Shanji Ey. I found it much like um, All About Lily Choo Choo or Chow Chow, however you pronounce that. Uh, it was a bit meandering. I did really like the editing approach. And I think one of the great things that he does is the editing. I think one of the great things, uh, he's sort of like his playful tone that he has in this movie with bo- not only sort of like the, the composition, the shot composition, the camera movement, but particularly the editing, I think completely mirrors the... Uh, the sort of like the playful nature of the main characters, uh, but the story itself, I it just the like the script, I, I guess it just I don't know. I found it relatively weak, uh, perhaps too long, perhaps too meandering, which is a bit of a weakness of his. I think all his movies have sort of a a dragging quality about them that you sort of have to again you have to appreciate the mood and the tone, and you can't rely solely on the story to kind of keep your attention uh, on the screen. Oh, that sounds like the film we're about to discuss. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. But uh, no, uh, don't jump ahead yet. Um, okay. <laughs> so that, so uh, I I also played a few ge- video games. Uh, so I played a video game called Disco Elysium. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah, I've downloaded it, but I haven't played it yet. Yes, I recommend playing it. It's a really good game. But oh my god, it's it it is a strange as hell game. Okay. It is a very strange game, and it is. I, I only the only thing I knew about it was that it had this unique setting, uh, this very unique story, uh, and it's also it's an RPG without combat, uh, which I guess is a, an interesting tagline. But it works. I think it's an interesting game. It has very interesting, very compelling story. The one negative thing that I would say it's perhaps a bit too wordy. Uh, there's a lot of dialogue, and there's a lot of like the dialogue is not so bad, but there's a lot of sort of like narrator's voice. Uh, and I'd say it was I, I was not surprised to read that it was created by a novelist because it does sound like someone who perhaps enjoys writing a bit too much for what is typically uh, conventional in a video game. And I, I think would have I think would have been better if that the, the the words on the screen basically were toned down a bit. Yeah, uh, there's no need to be so wordy. And and but it is it is interesting prose. It is beautiful prose. Sometimes perhaps a little bit too purple purpley. Yeah, but otherwise it's still pretty good. It's a very interesting story. I'm not finished yet, uh, as I mentioned before, because of I, I don't I'm not some guy who plays video games for too long. But I I usually do an hour every day or so and slowly go. So uh, so I'm I'm it's it's essentially a murder mystery. So it's a very good. Uh, I strongly recommend it. I strongly recommend it. The art is interesting and the the setting is very very interesting. I when I have enough time, I'll have a crack at it. Absolutely. Uh, another one is, uh, and this one more, I just wanted to try it. It was a PS, I just pulled up my old PS1 emulator and uh, wanted to check out Lunar Silver Star Story. Okay, that's one I've always wanted to get, but never did. How is it? Yeah, 
I I only played like thirty minutes of it because I just wanted to check it out. But it it it, it had um uh it had uh, it was a sort of a the not too different from your typical again Final Fantasy setting the what it is as the template for Japanese RPG, especially for that era. And it was a little like that, but it had an interesting. The combat was a little bit, uh, perhaps a little bit more complicated. So you had you had some movement. So it was a turn-based combat, but you had some movement. But I found it some uh, like strangely challenging. And I I don't know if I will continue to play it. The story felt relatively simplistic. It was sort of like a uh, I think just a, a very very typical medieval fantasy based story. At least so in the introduction that I uh, that I uh, just dipping my toes in it uh the combat but the combat i think the gameplay is interesting and if i can cont- if i continue to play it it will be for the gameplay because it it had an interesting aspect about it uh what and finally i i also the the game that i played the most actually was uh cuphead i don't know if you've heard about that one i it's like a platformer 1930s style cartoon yes it is a platformer right it's 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 a platformer but it's sort of like a, a platformer and action game uh, based on or the uh, with an art style based on Disney's 1930s, 1920s, and 1930s uh, animation style. Yeah, and it's it's a fun game, but it's also uh, but what I what did I didn't like about it was that it after a while it gets very repetitive. Essentially, every mission is more or less the same, and if you're not enjoying the animation style, it's it just again it you end up just kind of doing the same thing for for hours on end and it's only that but it is extremely difficult game very sadistic very sadistic and sometimes the difficulty is not even like what i consider fair it's just it's just repetition you have to do something over and over again and learn memorize pretty much everything that the enemy will do so you know how to avoid it and that's and i don't to me, that's like the worst type of difficulty in a game. It's just, I don't know. It's just like you said, sadistic. It just, it's to me, it's, um, I don't know. It doesn't. It's not a quality move to do on part of the developer, but it is still like has that uh, sm- small addictive part about it. That okay, but I still want to beat it. I still want to finish it. Uh, <laughs> and the other, the other thing that annoyed the hell out of me was I, I beat all the mis- the missions on the normal difficult or the easy difficulty. And then I found out that I could not like go into the final boss uh, without beating all the missions again in the normal difficulty, which was a very frustrating because I, I wish I wish I'd known that before, so I didn't have to do everything in the in the one difficulty, so I could have just done it in the normal difficulty from the start. Yeah, uh, but oh well. And I, I, I then eventually I gave up. I'm not playing it anymore. But uh, <laughs> it's an interesting game. But I think everything that is that is good about it is surface level. I think as a game, it's very repetitive. Uh, it it doesn't really have a story. The story is as bare bones as it can go. That's another thing that I I kind of wished it had more, more of a slightly more involved story. But again, it's it's a platformer arcade game. It's really not about the story. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's that's it. That's it for my cultural media consumption this week. Okay. After that, uh, we can go into our news sections, and we did have some interesting news uh, this week. So why don't you, why don't you go uh, tell us about that, Jason? In terms of like uh, festival announcements, Vancouver International Film Festival runs from the 29th of September to the 9th of October, and Asian film highlights include Plan 75, 
Riverside Mukulita, Decision to Leave, Broker, The Novelist's Film uh, by Hong Sang-soo, Septet, The Story of Hong Kong, The King of Wuxia, and uh, a few other Asian film titles. And um, some of those names will be familiar, like Plan 75, um, Decision to Leave, Broker, uh, because they've been on the festival circuit since um, Cannes Film Festival, and they've been racking up award wins. We've got uh, news uh, broke earlier today. Um, Takashi Miike is going to act as a general director on a Netflix anime adaptation of the video game Onimusha. So that's kind of like a historical big brawl action uh, video game put out by Capcom. Is it like a Bloodborne type of video game? Uh, no, it's um, uh, Muso. So it's like big crowds of people um, and you're playing a very strong character who's battling his way, his or her way through them. Okay. And uh, you've put down uh, Squid Game, won a number of en- Emmys. So, so it, and like I mentioned earlier, there was a, the Emmys were this week. And uh, it's uh, normally it's a, not an award that has a lot of Asian representation, but this year because of Squid Game. And again, uh, squ- how Squid Game becomes eligible, I perhaps because it was on Netflix, I think perhaps that, that made it eligible. But it won six Emmy. It was nominated for a lot. Like it was done for like 12 or something. And it won six Emmy Awards. The notable ones were for Best Actor in a Lead Drama for the main actor, uh, Lee Jun Jae. Uh, outstanding Directing for a Drama Series. Uh, and also Guest Actress in a Drama Series for uh, Lee Yoo Min, whom she played, I think, the one female interest of the main character that was also in the Squid Game. Okay. You, you did see that series, right? No, I didn't. I watched every, like most of the other Korean series except that one. <laughs> Oh, okay. But I thought, I remember, uh, I, do you still have Netflix? I remember we, we were talking that you would get Netflix and, uh, uh, and this is one of the ones that you were going to check out. I had it for like a, a two-month period back when I was ill. And I kind of like watched a whole bunch of series like Archive 81, um, All of Us Are Dead, and uh, like films like Earthquake Bird. Um, but I did not uh get to watch squid game i just didn't have enough time to sort of get into it yeah well maybe maybe uh once season two comes out uh you will uh maybe you'll uh check it out then and watch both seasons uh back to back i don't know i'll be playing hopefully i'll be able to play disco elysium i'll be probably to be too busy doing that too too much to do too many things not enough time <laughs> exactly and um yeah uh just uh, and that leads us on to the final news announcement. Um, this month we've had uh, the passing of two directors, Masahiro Kobayashi and um, Jean-Luc Godard. Um, so, you know, they had a massive influence on uh, film industries and, um, and film world. And um, it's obviously uh, sad to see them go, I suppose. So uh, rest in peace to those two uh, directors. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with... Uh... Kobayashi as I am with Godard, but he's definitely, you know, obviously he he's 60s and 70s stuff is unparalleled. But even even until the end of his life, he did he did some interesting things with film, especially perhaps one of the best 3D films in terms of utilizing the medium, which was Goodbye the Language. Yeah. Uh, as a as a sort of a, like perhaps the only 3D film that really does some interesting things with the third dimension. Uh, but anyway. Uh, so anything else regarding the news section? I think that's about it, really. Okay. 
Uh, so now that the news section is done, we can move we can move straight into our main discussion for this episode. And as I said earlier, today we're talking about the 2015 film The Assassin. So Jason, why don't you give us a plot summary of An Assassin and maybe a summary of uh, what uh, awards it won uh, during its release? So uh, The Assassin is a wuxia film from Taiwanese director Hu Xiaoxian, and it was his first film uh, in eight years. And it was his highest budgeted film at $15 million. And it was also his first Wuja movie. Um, it's an international co-production between Taiwan, China, and Hong Kong. And it's based on a short story by Pei Jing, a writer who lived during the Tang Dynasty, which ran from 618 AD to 907 AD. The film is set in 7th century China during the decline of the Tang Dynasty. We follow Nie, uh, forgive my pronunciation, we follow Nie, Yin Yang, an aristocrat who was given as a child to Jia Jin, a nun who raised her in the art of the blade. Since then, Jia Jin has used Yin Yang as an assassin whose primary targets are corrupt government officials. When Yin Yang displays mercy by failing to kill in one of her missions, Jia Jin punishes her with a mission designed to test Yin Yang's resolve. Yin Yang must kill her cousin, Lord Tian the military governor of Weibo province, who was, back in her childhood, her fiancé. So, the film stars Xu Qi as Ni Yin Yang, the titular assassin. Uh, it also stars Chang Chen as Lord Tian. And we've got an appearance by Japanese actor Satoshi Tsumabuki as the mirror polisher. Uh, the film's directed by Ho Xiaoxian, as previously mentioned, and it features uh, cinematography by uh, uh, Ping Bin Li, who also worked on In the Mood for Love, amongst uh, other films. Uh, he also worked in, on Norwegian Wood, and uh, he's a frequent collaborator of Ho, uh, starting with Dust in the Wind back in the 1980s. In terms of awards, it played in the main competition section of the 2015 Cannes Film Festival. Ho won the award for Best Director at the festival. Uh, the film was selected as the Taiwanese entry for the Best Foreign Language Film at the 2016 Academy Awards, but it did not make the final lineup. Film magazine Sight and Sound named it uh, the best film of 2015 based on votes from 168 critics from around the world. Uh, its list of awards include uh, 2015 Asia-Pacific Screen Awards, uh, Achievement in Cinematography for Ping Bin Li, um, 2016 Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror Films uh, Award. Well, that's, that's like uh, Saturn Awards, as the short hand. Yeah, which I was a bit surprised because, okay, I guess we'll talk about it, but it seems they, they, they tend to be a little bit more heavy on the genre fiction. Hmm. So it won Best International Feature at the Saturn Awards for 2016. At the 2016 Asian Film Awards, it won Best Film, Director, Actress, Supporting Actress, Cinematographer, Composer, Production Designer, and Sound. At the uh, uh, 2015 Cannes Film Festival, as previously mentioned, Best Director. It also won the Soundtrack Award for Gyeong Lim. And um, it was nominated for the Palme d'Or, but uh, it lost to Deepan by Jacques Arnold. 2016 Chinese Film Media Awards, it won Best Picture and Best Director. At the 2015 Golden Horse Film Festival, it won Best Director, Feature Film, 
cinematography, makeup and costume design, sound effects. And at the 2016 Hong Kong Film Awards, it won Best Chinese Language Film from the Two Coasts. So, uh, just to, to give a quick uh, comment on that, it's uh, this pretty much won almost every award that he was <laughs> eligible for, except short of the Oscars and maybe the Palme d'Or. There's nothing, like, it's kind of swept, I think it's fair to say, right? Yeah, I mean, compared to the last episode, Burning, which was nominated for many awards and didn't win many. Yeah. Uh, some massive contrast. Exactly. All, all right, Jason. So thank you very much for that summary. I, this is, I think it's safe to say that for both of us, this is a, a first time watch. What did you think of the film? I went in with high expectations because of its positive uh, uh, reception. I can remember it at the time of release. Um, uh, it had a lot of praise. And um, when I first watched it, I found it frustrating for a Wuja film because it was slow paced. The story was told in an opaque manner. Um, the action was performed and edited in such a way that um, it was unsatisfying. And I could kind of see that Ho was aiming for the atmosphere to provide a character and influence proceedings. And the film's very beautiful and it sounds great. Uh, but the many long passages, which are just atmosphere and locations, um, ultimately you know, made it frustrating to view. And then uh, I actually rewatched it again after uh, doing some research, um, watching Tony Rain's BFI introduction and watching uh, a couple of other of Ho's films, um, specifically uh, uh, oh, uh, Café Lumiere and um, Green Green Grass of Home. And I think... After doing all of this research, uh, I could get into the film more on the second and third time of viewing it because I could see an evolution of Ho's style and I could understand uh, what he was doing with the Wuja genre. Um, but yeah, I initially found it frustrating. How about you? Uh, so I, I, I'd say I probably pretty much concur with you 100%, except I didn't do the research for a second or third viewing, so I don't have that transformation of opinion. I, I'm still stuck at the... I don't... I I just don't necessarily see the appeal of the film. Like you said, it has beautiful cinematography, beautiful beautiful sound, uh, great acting, of course. It's But the action left quite a bit desired, to the point that I'm not sure if this even qualifies as a wuxia film, although I think probably does. It's just it's compared to... Compared to, you know, what is sort of typically known as Wuja, this uh, seems to be very, very understated. And we talked about, when we talked about um, a crouching tiger, hidden dragon, we said, well, it's not as, as flamboyant as Wuja films are usually. Well, this one takes it, <laughs> takes it a step even further, where it's completely, completely uh, hiding all these sort of like the typical elements that you see in a Wuja film, like the the sort of like the melodrama, the the exaggerated actions, the flying around, etc. There's pretty much none of that. It's just it's it's really the action is very typical of a martial arts film, except not the best editing around it and not the best action choreography. I would say, in my opinion, yeah, it, uh, the Assassin is definitely a Wuja film because it features like sword fights and it has magic and wire work and battles in the forests and like uh, fealty to masters and a way of life but it's so minimal it that's why i mentioned like doing research into ho style and seeing how 
like when he first started making commercial films, it's very sort of like romantic comedies. And then uh, he does sort of like biographical films and autobiographical films set in modern Taiwan. And then you see like his uh, sort of the way he deploys longer and longer takes and uh, he uses uh, long shots um, and um, he allows the landscape to become part of the action and he spends time building ambience. And you see that build up over the course of his career. Then going back to the assassin, it makes a bit more sense. Yeah, but I mean, I, I have seen other uh, uh, who films like um, the one that always sticks to me is Three Times, which is a film composed of three different short films. I can I can see his elements, and I I appreciate them in a film like that uh, because it it's sort of like it's essentially if you haven't seen it three times is a is a film comprised of three short films starring the same actors. And one is set in the 60s, the other one is set in some uh, ancient Chinese time, and the other one is set in, well, not ancient, it's some historical time, it's not ancient. And the other one is set in modern times, and it stars the same two actors sort of having, trying to, attempting to have a relationship in all these stories. And he, all, he employs all those elements that you mentioned, but yeah, somehow in that film, it works. Whereas here, I just, I don't know, it seems... I will sort of, it seems to me that the, everything that you mentioned is what people, uh, why he was a, won so many best director awards, because he is sort of a master of his craft. He, he is able to utilize all those elements uh, to almost perfection to sort of like, like create the mood that he does. And this film is, is nothing if not moody, right? Or atmospheric. Uh, but again, it's it goes back to sort of like the you know the the most basic element of filmmaking, which is story, and it just it it doesn't feel like it's there. It like when I was watching this film, when I finished, even though this film is not short, it's not long. It's an hour and forty five minutes or something like that. So it's you know a typical average length for a film like this. It felt like okay, so where's the rest of it, right? It felt like this was a scene a few scenes from a larger story or a larger film there's there was a sense of incompleteness about it even though the film does have a a more or less traditional three-story arc there's a very clear introduction there's very clear middle build-up part and a very, very clear conclusion to the film so it's not like it's missing any elements of filmmaking uh, as one understands filmmaking in modern times but it still feels incomplete it feels like he was yanked out of a bigger script and then modified it to be a, its own script in in itself, and it just didn't like in that sense. It just doesn't doesn't work for me. Yeah, like I appreciate it more after watching more of Ho's films, but it's kind of like um, I uh, it still leaves me cold. Um, it's hard to f make an emotional attachment to uh, the characters, and um, he gives uh, slices of exposition just enough to get the context of the story. Um, but he never really elaborates it uh, on it um, satisfactorily, and um, like the emotional. Well, connections I mean, he between... employs the show don't tell a technique, yeah. which I, I found it fine. Right, like how we, you know, the whole the, the whole subplot about the the um, Tian Zhan and his mistress, right, being pregnant or something like that. I think I had yeah, I had to um, watch that a second time just to fully appreciate it. That one I enjoy. I always hate overexpose. I mean, it's made, I've been making I've been made this clear. I I am a minimalist myself, uh, so that's that's fine. But it's still uh, yeah, it's still it's still. I mean, he I think he is a minimalist in places where maybe he 
or at least I, I what I didn't enjoy it. But one, I mean, one example to what your point was about sort of uh, uh, appreciating in context. I, I, I would counter that by saying I'm not sure that's an excuse because another film, not not at all like this one, but a film that has a similar effect where it it works on a on one level when you don't have the context, but then you can appreciate it on a completely different level if you understand the context. Is Battle Royale, right? If you it 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 is such a such a different film, so such a better film. If you know sort of like what historical uh, references it contains within, and also what references from um, Fukasaku's own life really it references. But even if you know none of that, even if you have done none of that work, you can still appreciate the film as a very good action film or as a very good thriller action film, right? Uh, yeah. And wh- whereas the assassin doesn't work like that. Yes, I I will grant you that perhaps maybe you can appreciate. Uh, you can appreciate certain things about it after you've researched whose filmography and, and sort of like whose style more. And maybe you've read, you know, three or four essays about it. But to me, that's just not, that's not really, that's not really the way to go about a film. It still yeah. should work as a film. And then perhaps you can get more out of it if you delve deeper into it. Yeah, no, I appreciate what he's doing with the film and how he's bending the genre to his own style. But it doesn't, yeah, I, I agree. It doesn't make a satisfying film because I, it still leaves me cold at the end of the day. I like a bunch of pretty images. There are two great action scenes and that's, you know, you know I wanted more essentially at the end, at the end of each viewing. Yeah, there was... Again, like speaking of the sense of incompleteness, there was like to to bring a few specific examples just to justify what I meant is there's like you mentioned it has magic. Did you think that that just sort of comes out of nowhere? Right. The film feels like a historical drama for most of it. And then like 15 minutes from the end, all of a sudden we have voodoo or whatever that the Chinese version of that. Didn't you think that sort of came out? of the blue and then it's then it kind of disappears again completely because they kill the wizard or the sorcerer yeah. and then it's just back to the historical drama and do you know what that guy reminded me of the um dude in spirited away who's constantly putting like uh uh yeah, coal yeah, in yeah, the yeah. fire yeah. but yeah, um yeah yeah it it, it, it uh, like the magic seems to come out of nowhere um like the wire work is at a very uh minimal uh level uh, so you've got like people floating down to the ground or jumping up a couple of times, but the, like combat's realistic and um, spends so much time uh, with the atmosphere that all of a sudden like magic's inserted into stories. Like, oh, where's this come from? Yeah, it felt again. Another thing is, it's it's one of those films that it felt like an exercise, like the like, and I think perhaps perhaps that's that's what I, I think you are able to appreciate more through research is sort of like the the successes of the exercises but i st- of the, of what the exercise is that the director was trying to accomplish but it still doesn't feel like a complete film to me yeah another another thing i think even the 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 give another example even the the pregnancy subplot felt to me like you complete like i'm not i'm not sure that it concludes in a sat- satisfactory manner i think there's maybe some sort of a reconciliation that uh, uh that uh, the main protagonist which is her name is Ni Yin Yang. Yin Yang, yeah. And she has uh, that confrontation with uh, Tian Jian. And then he, of course, realized that it is his wife that tried to poison yeah. him or something. I forget. Tried to poison his mistress. And uh, yes, his yes, lieutenant yeah, right. sort of tells him that, that she's done it before. Yes. But d- d- do we get what happens after that? 
it's sort of like left sort of as a as a things become uh things go back to the norm or something like that but we don't really get a, a concrete conclusion of that well you just uh, get the impression that husband and wife are locked in the cold war at the end of it yeah Exactly. Whereas uh, Ni, Ni Yin Yang's story has a conclusion in the sense that she's able to leave the assassin lifestyle behind. Yeah, I would say that is perhaps the only, the only satisfactory aspect of the film is the arc of the main character, right? She starts off as a, with a, you know, we get, we don't need the exposition. We get that she's a, you know, a very stereotypical, deadly assassin trained, trained by a nun in isolation, all that. That's a, you know, standard Chinese uh, wuxia folklore, right? A very typical yeah. wuxia element. Well, this, this story is sort of like a foundational text of the whole wuxia genre. Yes. Um, and, uh, and then she goes, she's punished, she goes to kill, she's assigned as a punishment to kill her cousin or family member, someone she was betrothed to or something like that. And yeah. she fails, so she decides, she decides to completely abandon that life and uh, chose choose a choose to be the bodyguard of a mirror polisher, which again I have no idea why. What's the importance of the mirror polisher? If there's a symbolism there that I'm probably maybe there is that I'm missing. Uh, but at least as just if you if you have tunnel vision and you focus solely on her, I think it's the one element of the film that has a conclusion, a, 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 a satisfying sort of uh, story arc with a with a solid beginning, middle, and end, and it concludes at least her character in a satisfactory manner. Well, in the original story, I think, uh, Ni Yin Yang marries the mirror polisher, so she leaves the old lifestyle behind and uh, escorts him into another kingdom and um, or another region and uh, ends up marrying him. But why the mirror polisher? He has, he, like, he, uh, well, he comes at a critical moment to uh, rescue some characters and, um, like, his nature is so opposed to all she's known. Like, he's a really good-hearted guy. I um, see, I see. And so it's like uh, like her way of escaping, one of her ways of escaping, essentially. Yeah, okay. I mean, there you go. Make, makes sense. That, that, I think that explanation makes sense. But I think what you said about this being a foundational text, and I think this is, I haven't read the, the story, but it, it strikes to me that it's perhaps something akin to a fairy tale. To what hmm. we in the West would call as a fairy tale, and perhaps I think the if you if you think of fairy tales, they don't really have character development. They don't have uh, you know very detailed exposition. They don't have necessarily detailed world building. They're sort of like you know like very superficial tales. Not necessarily that they're not important in in any given culture's folklore, but they are they are not fiction, right? Or they're not they're they're not uh, prose they're not they're not a fully developed story it's a fairy tale right it's a it's a snapshot of a story uh, yeah you get that sense from the way like the whole like the context is bare bones and it's enough to understand what the story's going on but i kept thinking to myself why should i care about the conflict between weibo and the imperial court as you said it's uh, like the assassin's character arc is much more interesting than that and it's the only thing that's fully developed exactly exactly um yeah and, and that's and that's the thing um uh it's just it just feels like they took they stuck to the fair perhaps a bit too close that they didn't bother to fill in the gaps which is typically what you do like there's i'm sure there are plenty of fairy tale adaptations that we we might be familiar with and there's always perhaps a bit more exploration a bit more like 
um, you know, like Pan's Labyrinth is sort of a, a, I don't know if it's based on a specific fairy tale, but has a fairy tale quality about it. But it, Del Toro fills in the gaps enough to make it to make it palpable and to to make it to, to turn it into a complete story. Yeah. Whereas this one seems like they didn't bother. It seems like who was more focused on on creating the right atmosphere than a film story, which is, I guess it's a valid thing. I mean, there are plenty of films, other films that are tend to focus on on at first minute the story is perhaps minimal, but at least the story is minimal and is still solid enough that that it works. Like you know, maybe think of Jackie Chan movies. Sometimes the story is laughably simple, but it still it still feels complete, right? Or or maybe the mission, because that's a oh, film the mission. Which is... Oh yeah, that's a, that's a perfect one. A very simple story, but it's still yeah. It's it's, it's it's because it's chosen so the the director can focus on other elements of filmmaking. But it's still a, a solid story. Yeah, you've got character development for the team. Um, you understand uh, uh, swaying allegiances um, that go on, and uh, yeah, there's uh, there's so uh, like. The the two films feel similar, but there's just something lacking in the assassin. Yeah, and uh, speaking, bringing this back to the larger context of the of the time, the one the one that surprised me the most, and maybe maybe frustrated me the most a little bit, was the sight and sound vote for best film of the year. Yeah, uh, I simply don't understand that, and this is not this is not some random blog top top of best film of the year uh is this is the sight and sound magazine which generally they do this every year and they have they poll the the top critics of the world you know the most uh, renowned film scholars and critics and they they vote what the best film of every year is and just to give a bit of context it's not like the critics pick specifically like a top film and and it the one and that's how it gets picked. It's it's really critics provide either a top five list or a top ten list, and in, in no particular order. It's just my favorite fi- film of the year. And there's hundreds of critics, and usually the film that wins best of the year is the one that has the most mentions in a critic's top five. Yeah. So 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 that means that most most that that means that the the assassin was uh, the top five in in the largest number of critics, although the, although it may not have been those particular critics' favorite film. Well, this is like I go back to that point of once you understand like the career trajectory and like the style trajectory of Ho Xiao Xian, like the I guess these cri- uh, critics uh, uh, ha- have that in mind and um, like they go into the film, they know exactly what they're getting and um, they're satisfied with it. Yeah, but I, I still find that a hard pill to swallow. Uh, like especially if you look, so let's let's me just, just uh, mention some names that came out the same year. So Mad Max: Fury Road, The Martian, The Revenant, Spotlight, The Big Short, The Hateful Eight, The Lobster, Room, Son of Saul, Youth by Paolo Sorrentino, and a couple of uh, uh, Asian films that I was able to sort of like found that were. Uh, were relatively popular in uh, in uh, 2015. Little Sister by Koreeda and Mr. Six, a Chinese film, which is not not people don't make a big deal out of it now, but it was sort of a, in the in the spotlight uh, in 2015, and mm. he won a few awards. So it seems to me that, uh, and this is just the few uh, list that I was able to compile in a in a short after short Google search. It seems to me that there are some 
films here that deserve that number one spot more than The Assassin. I don't know if you would agree with me or not, but... Yeah, it, it did puzzle me. And I thought, when I looked at the... When I saw it was the top of the list, I thought it must have been a slow year for films for no. The Assassin. I think, I think Mad Max was second or third. Hmm. Like, like the other films we've talked about, um, where we've uh, talk, uh, discussed whether they deserve their awards, like there's always been an element of populist appeal, which is absent with The Assassin. There's always been a, 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 like a successful execution of the genre that satisfies both cinephiles and a mainstream audience. And uh, yeah, it just, I, I didn't feel it with The Assassin. Yeah. Carol was another film that year. But okay, sp speaking of which, what what uh, what would be your favorite film of that year, twenty fifteen? Uh I really, really, really enjoyed Love and Peace, and that's a film that's really plays on all the. Is that the Sean Sono? Sean Sono. Okay, I haven't seen it. Yeah, I think I talked about it in a Christmas special. Um, two thousand fifteen, we talked about right. Yes, yes. Well, well, would you really put it as your best of the year? Um, best of the year. I mean, I know it's a very on-the-spot move, on-the-spot question, but yeah, it's one film that I keep uh, returning to. Probably like maybe Our Little Sister's good, but uh, Love and Peace is one I keep returning to. Okay. Oh, another another big film that year was uh, Cemetery of Splendor by the Thai director whose name is impossible uh, to pronounce. Peter Paul Virasethical. Virasethical, yes. Uh, which is, I think, an international co-production and also a very beautiful film, although. Uh, probably not. If you're looking for popular appeal, he's not someone who uh, easily provides that. <laughs> mm. uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's just uh, uh, there's so many uh, there's so many films that year that it just again uh, I, I'm, I I I already said that I did not do sort of the research and I've only seen a couple of uh, Who films. Uh, he's. I think he was part of the uh, the uh, generation of directors in Taiwan that sort of became prominent in the nineties, sort of like it's the a, new wave. Yeah, I Taiwanese think. new wave in the nineteen eighties with Edward Yang. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so he's part of that generation, uh, and he's also you know somewhat diverse director. I think he's he's worked in a, a few genres, not just. He's mostly known for his dramas, but I think he has worked in a few genres. He's um, worked in um, France and Japan as well. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, but so, so I'm not, I'm not the best person to judge his his work. But I still, I don't know. I it, to, to me, this is an easy no for best film of the year. I think even even if you take all the context, I think there were better films. I would say The Lobster was a very good film that year, and Mad Max Fury Road. I would say it's probably uh, one of the best films of that year. Son of Saul was another one that which is like sort of phenomenal film, and it was. Perhaps the first unique take on a Holocaust on the Holocaust story for a long time, maybe since Schindler's List. Uh, what about the counterfeiters? Was that that was that, uh, that was two thousand seven, I believe. Okay, that was a good film, but you know, uh, oh, the counterfeiters. Yes, in terms of uniqueness, absolutely. Yes, uh, I, I was talking in Son of Saul. Uh, I was talking more uniqueness in the style of filmmaking. Oh, okay. Uh, if you watch, not 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 the particular story, because particular is that's another film, that's another film with a very simple story. It's really about one, a Jewish prisoner who is trying to find a rabbi to bless his son's grave. Mm. Uh, that's really the whole story. It's him just looking for a rabbi. So it's a simple, solid story which allows the director to focus on the style. 
And it's mm. it's and that's what I meant a unique take, not necessarily the story. The story is very simple. Okay. But yeah, so again, it seems to me that I've also heard great thing about youth uh by Paolo Sorrentino, which stars Michael Caine and um who else? Harvey Keitel, I think. Yeah. But I did not see that one. And I also haven't seen Little Sister. Our little sister, I took uh, my mother to see that just before I moved to Japan. That was a really wonderful film. Okay. So that so that's what I mean. I think I think there's a lot of films that I think deserved that uh, best film of the year spot in the sight and sound rating more so than um, uh, than uh, than the assassin. Although uh, from what you said, I can sort of see how perhaps if if the critics were more academics, I can see how that might appeal to people's sort of like academic side. Yeah, and Sight and Sound is a magazine that tends to lean towards the academic side of things. I see. Yeah. Um, uh, that said, I wouldn't object, for example, to the Best Director Awards because, again, I I think the direction, the Best Director Award is tricky because it it is tricky to sort of like separate from the best film. But I think it can be separated. And I think if you do that, the the Assassin is directed impeccably. Uh, achieving achieving a very sp- mood, especially, is really hard to do. It's really hard to do in prose, in fiction, and it's also really hard to do in cinema. And I think uh, who has done that remarkably. So I don't. I wouldn't object to those awards. But anything to do with best film, I don't know about that. Yeah, there's a lot of artistry on the screen. Um, like the landscape shots are absolutely fantastic. The costume design. And the framing of scenes, so you're getting like tableau of characters put together, like static shots, and it might be the odd pan just to get some details. And uh, the performances, because Ho Xiaoshen likes to shoot multiple takes, and sometimes he'll do it over non-consecutive days because uh, like he'll go back to a scene when the lighting's a bit different or the energy of an actor is a bit different so he can get a different um, uh, 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 take on uh, on a specific passage. Also, didn't they stop production for this one because they ran out of funding? So they had to... That's why China got involved? Yeah, China, like Chinese production company uh, uh, put up, was it half the budget, something like that? Uh, some, yeah, I, I forget the numbers, but sounds right. Yeah, so, so yeah, you've got great landscape shots in um, Mongolia and um, China and um, like great um, sets, which are based in Taiwan, from what I understand. And it all looks fantastic. You can see like the money's been put on the screen and it transports you uh, to another time. And apparently they're all speaking um, like uh, a classical Chinese as well, which as a Westerner, I, I don't get. But um, yeah. It must have been a, a, a great undertaking for the actors to force themselves, uh, well, to learn classical Chinese. And Ho Xiaosen has said that like, using that language limited the way um, the actors could express themselves emotionally as well. I can tell Cantonese and Mandarin apart. That's about it. Everything else is, is lost on me. Yeah, that yeah, that's a yeah, regional dialects and uh, different time periods. Uh, no, just Cantonese and Mandarin as well. So would this be, I guess, uh, I guess uh, we can talk about sort of our overall feelings of the film. Would this be the first film so far this season that we think doesn't deserve the recognition that it's gotten? Yeah, I, f- uh, I think we've both agreed on every film apart yeah, from so, this one. Yeah, so I think Burning, we said it deserved more. 
Yeah. <laughs> Departures, we said it perhaps isn't the best film, but it still was a relatively, uh, you know, compared to everything else that was available at the time, it wasn't the best film of the year in terms of Asian cinema, but it was still an important film in, in, in terms of popular Asian cinema. Yeah, it had uh, that mainstream appeal. Okay, The Mission, Taste of Cherry, Raise the Red Lantern, Crouching Tiger, and Parasite, and Drive My Car. All those more or less deserved the recognition and the awards that it gotten. Would this be the first one that it doesn't? Yeah, it just doesn't have that sort of... Uh, the balance isn't there for um, just getting engaged with the story. Um, everything else is fine, like the sounds, the visuals, but the story is lacking. Yeah, it's it's like... It's like a technical. It's it's like a film of technical excellence, but doubtful storytelling. Mm. And as a bourgeois film, I wanted more from the action. Like the action was, uh, I loved the action scene, the extended action scene in the forest, um, where Satoshi Tsumabuki's character appears and uh, Shuchi um, saves him by pushing one of the soldiers into the path of oncoming arrows, and like that whole sequence was fantastic. And um, like Ho Shaoshen has said, he likes Japanese martial arts, things that are real. And that's why a lot of the action scenes are actually quite truncated because it takes a very realistic approach to the action instead of the flamboyant wuja um, so, um, standards that we're expecting. I just wanted more. Yeah, but I mean, that's I, I think that's perhaps a good more general discussion to have as to why, what are the purposes of sur- subverting a genre, right? Like in general, like if there are there are different genres or styles that have established tropes. And so when you, you chose to purposely go against them, that you intentionally sub- subvert men. And, you know, sometimes it can be sort of like a, a meta commentary on the genre itself, right? That sometimes that is the purpose. Yeah, or it could just be to show off mastery of the genre. To show off mastery of the genre, uh, which is, I, to me, that's perhaps not, not as a, a great reason to do it, but it should exist. I think sometimes it's to actually get an effect, a more enhanced effect, like in the mission, where he hmm. somewhat subverts the heroic heroic uh, bloodshed genre bloodshed, yeah. to keep it to keep it more or less exaggerated, but uh, that has the effect of increasing the tension, right? Without yeah. without much movement, without much uh, action in the sense of physical action. Uh, but the, the, here in the assassin, what is the effect of subverting the genre? And perhaps that is maybe the key flaw of the film is that it does something purely as an exercise, which I mentioned. But it, but perhaps we can get more specific about the subversion of genre is next. Does it have an effect that a typical subversion of genre would in the film, other than maybe showing that he could do it as a director, but to me, that's not really that valuable. He could do it as a director in his own style, creating like uh, perhaps the first minimalist wuja film. Well, I, I doubt it's the first minimalist. I, I'm sure if we searched, I'm sure we'd find something. It seems, it seems 2015 seems too late to actually do that, but I don't know, maybe. Maybe, maybe. Like, uh, when I think of Bouja, I think of King Hu films and their, like, um, massive sprawling things or, like, Yeah, but that was in the 70s. That was in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, like, these are, like, bombastic all the way through to Choi Hark um, with, like, uh, Dragon Inn, uh, his remake of Dragon Inn. That's another bombastic title itself. And um, I can't think of um, another minimalist uh, Wuja film, you're probably right that there's one that already exists. Uh, maybe it's just not famous. I'm just speculating. I have no idea. 
Yeah, but I think it's like Ho wanted to make a Wuja film and he wanted to do it in his own style and this is it. And um, like, like there are elements of it that are really great and there are like his style uh, of storytelling just doesn't quite work for this. Maybe it works in Café Lumière or, and more of his um, more modern films where it's uh, easier to relate to the characters, um, easier to get uh, or uh, contextual stuff. It's much easier to get into, but for the assassin, like, like spending long chunks wondering why I should care, uh, it didn't work. Yeah, it's like, um, I think it's like there's been always a discussion about forever about Tarantino doing a Star Trek movie or mm. writing a Star Trek movie. And it would be, uh, it would be, you know, a very different type of Star Trek movie because it would be a Star Trek movie in Tarantino style. And a lot of people debate whether or not that would work. Uh, and hmm. maybe it just wouldn't work. Maybe they're just they're exclusive to each other, right? Maybe that type of story with that style just just don't work. It would be really hard to make it work. Or maybe you have to to change one or the other to make them work. And I feel like that's what uh, Hu didn't do. He took a story, a very traditional Chinese story, and put it into his style and changed neither to make them fit together. So they just took the two pieces of the puzzle and just smashed smash them together without necessarily modifying uh, each other respectively to make them fit better together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think like fans of his, his style will totally take the film. But uh, for everybody else who's like expecting a Wuja film, it's, it, it might cause disappointment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, I, I'd never said that it was a bad film. I think it's, it's, a, it's a good film and has great elements about it. And some elements that just don't work so well. But nothing is that is terrible or bad is just yeah this is this is all subjective and it's kind of like it, it didn't quite work for us but for other people it definitely worked like the sight and sound critics it worked yeah absolutely uh if you could change anything about the film what would you change uh, the story just make it make it more complete would you like more dialogue between certain characters yeah yeah more dialogue perhaps uh perhaps perhaps expand the secondary characters a little bit yeah. Yeah, I mean I I mean there's probably a lot of things that you could do I could do to change the film that I would like it more but again it's sort of like oh, it's all, all almost like a you know uh feels a little bit guilty to to speculate. Yeah. Because you know who knows if you actually you know an idea in your head is completely different than an actual product on screen if it would work or not. But yeah, definitely the story and expand the characters a little bit more. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so what would you change? Yeah, I would try and add more meat to character interactions. Uh, so I could come to care more about the characters, and like especially the secondary characters. Like as we discussed earlier, like Nin Ni Yin Yang's character arc is satisfying satisfying, it's complete. Whereas what happens with Lord Tian and Lady Tian is just left open ended. Uh if not that, then at least add some more satisfying action. <laughs> yeah, definitely expand the action scenes. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, so, anything, anything else? Uh, what did you think of the music? Um. So, I mean, the soundtrack was uh, there was that, that sort of like traditional uh, string instrument, the Chinese string instrument, right? That was that was what was causing the sounds. Yeah, there's this rhythmic drumming as well throughout most of the film. Absolutely. 
I think it worked well in the film and it helped sort of like generate some tension, but I don't, it's not like the kind of soundtrack that I would just listen to as music on its own, right? I think it worked well in the context of the film. I don't remember if there was any particular piece or, or theme that I could have just watched in isolation. I mean, listened to in isolation. Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, the rhythmic drumming, just to go back to it, um, created an ominous uh, feeling to the film about uh, proceedings and then it would spike at specific moments like my favorite scene the battle in the forest uh with um a certain characters are ambushed and the mirror polisher emerges uh but then it builds up to this really great track when the credits are rolling uh i enjoyed that one and it's like i don't know it sounds like bagpipes uh there must be a like a chinese instrument similar to that. yeah yeah i think it was entirely chinese instruments although who knows perhaps that was another mode of subversion that he employed hmm was it every culture that has um like um animal farming uh has bagpipes something like that okay i mean that sounds that sounds plausible yeah that's that's something to research i suppose yeah absolutely all right then uh that's it for our discussion of the assassin the 2015 film directed by hu xiao shen uh next episode we'll be talking about the japanese film uh, Twi- the Twilight Samurai, released in 2002, uh, directed by the famous Yoji Yamada. Uh, until then, anything you'd like to close with, uh, Jason, before we end the episode? Uh, I hope everybody uh, enjoyed the- listening to the discussion. And um, if you've had the chance or you get the chance to watch The Assassin, um, please let us know what you think. Uh, maybe you disagree with our um, findings. Uh, maybe you agree. Uh, it'd be interesting to have that conversation. So check out our social media and leave a comment. Yeah. Or maybe you saw something that we missed. Absolutely. Everybody has a unique experience with films. Absolutely. All right. So if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, please uh, let us know at heroic-purgatory.blogspot.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at Heroic Purgatory, all in one word. Otherwise, we'll see you next time.